Hello, folks. Joe Lowry here. Before we get to this week's episode of MLS Assist, where myself and Jordan Angeli break down many, many of the on-field happenings inside Major League Soccer, I wanted to let you know that right now, The Athletic is running a pretty spectacular promotion. You know all of the exclusive in-depth soccer coverage that The Athletic has? Well, if you head to theathletic.com slash MLSassist right now, you'll receive an all-access subscription for just $1. Just in time for the home stretch of the MLS season, you'll be able to read all of The Athletic's insightful journalism to help you stay up-to-date on what's happening in Major League Soccer. So if you want access to all of that soccer coverage and coverage of tons of other sports, head to theathletic.com slash MLSassist to receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. Now, Let's get to this week's episode of MLS Assist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, it's good to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, it's good to see you too, Joe. I'm doing all right. I think that it was um, a very reflective week for a lot of us, a heavy week, but also a week filled with um, a lot of remembrance at how lucky we are to have known Daryl Grove and um, just really the response we got from from what we said about him too. I just want to thank everybody for listening and also letting us just be emotional because we were emotional and still have a little bit of that in us as well. Yeah, it was really encouraging to see and read the feedback from that show, not because of anything that we did, even on the analysis yeah. side at all, but of of kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning, what we were talking about for Daryl and just having people come alongside you and I in that was was really special. And I know Taylor Rockwell has been feeling a lot of that, just mm-hmm. seeing the love from from people that either knew Daryl or or had the privilege of listening to him on TSS for all those years. It was really special to see, and it's been special to see. Uh, over the last week and change at this point. So yeah. So how have you been? I've been well, I've I've realized that the way I open the show with it's good to see you really doesn't fit for a podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know we're we're Skyping and recording at the same time. So yeah. I do see Jordan as we, <laughs> we record get to see each other, um, even though no one else out there can do that. So there's a little little behind the scenes tidbit for all of our listeners who maybe didn't maybe know that. one day, maybe one day we'll turn this into a whole big people are like video podcasting. I'm like, isn't that the diff? Isn't that like kind of we've been there, right? Like that's a circle back to YouTube, isn't it? Yeah, it just does feel like <laughs> that. But uh, maybe one day we'll really you'll get to see all of our hand gestures and animation when we're. When we're recording this, but there, we get to see that, that, so it is good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> On this week's episode of MLS Assists, we've got a lot to get through, including some true shellackings that happened on the field Ooh. this week in Major League Soccer. And yes, I think that word is fitting. But before we get into analyzing specific games from the weekend, Jordan, I was watching NYCFC versus the Montreal Impact. This is a 3-1 win for Ronnie Dyla and NYCFC. This game marked the return of Maxi Morales to NYCFC's starting lineup. And that got me thinking, watching Maxi play, watching him move, watching him control the ball. He pretty much gets the MLS assist on NYCFC's first goal, and he scores their second goal, driving at the back line, creating space and getting the ball back and finishing in the box. The number 10 position as a whole is not faded. It's still here. Like the number 10 is very much still a part of modern soccer, which is weird to me. And I'm going on this almost rant or more just kind of thought process at the start of the show, because we read, or at least I read and and think about the number 10 as being a position that has gone away. It's completely in the background now, but that's not the case. The 4-2-3-1 
is what NYCFC played this game in, is such a common formation in soccer across the world. Yeah. The number 10 position, especially in Major League Soccer, I feel like is a spot where players or a quality number 10 can completely change the makeup of a team. I mean, you've got Maxi Morales with NYCFC. For the Columbus crew, Jordan, you've got Lucas Celarayan, Pozuelo for Toronto, Lodero with Seattle. Yeah. I mean, Pereira with Orlando City. We even saw it with Federico <laughs> Iguain and, right? and DC United during the MLS's back tournament, even though he's moved on to Inter-Miami. I guess my point is that the 10 position is still such an influential thing. And this all came from me, again, watching Maxi Morales play, which is a truly joyful experience. It really is. I am still shocked that we... Crew played NYCFC last week and Maxi Morales made his return, but only for maybe 30 minutes. And it just shocks me every time. 20 assists last year, 20 assists for him. And it is an incredible feat. And so he is really a special player. And I think that there's a lot of talk about that 10 position and it not being what it used to be because it isn't what it used to be. Right. With the freedom of the defensive responsibilities. I think there was a lot less defensive responsibilities. But when you talk about players that you just mentioned, there's a lot of additional responsibility defensively that I actually think can create better spacing and better uh, starting positions for the 10 in certain defensive situations. So say a team's uh, in a 4-4-2 pressing block and one of the the 10 is one of the first two players up top right it's probably the t- the number nine and the number 10 who are those for t- two top players and defensively if you win the ball in a good spot the 10 can pop off the line and then right away be in between the back line and the midfield line for the opposing team and be in a really good pocket of space so I think sometimes the the defensive responsibilities have added to the value of that position because the starting point in transition can be a little bit better. I love that. I mean, we're not seeing Marco Echeverri on the field anymore in Major League Soccer, not only because he doesn't play soccer anymore <laughs> professionally, but because the position has changed, right? Mm-hmm. We, we spent time at the beginning of this coronavirus break that happened in the middle of Major League Soccer, going back and watching old MLS games. We did an episode on the very first season and kind of comparing and contrasting that DC United team in the the opener of Major League Soccer and in the final of that year with the soccer that we see now. Or at least I I think that's what we did way back then. It feels like a lifetime ago, but we don't see Echeverry. I'm trusting you on that. Yeah, I appreciate that. That might be a bad call. But we don't see... No, it was good. That was. (laughs) We don't see Echeverry drifting around with no defensive responsibilities anymore. That doesn't happen. Now, instead, we see a Maxi Morales or we see a Lucas Celarayan or a Pozuelo with defensive roles, which Mm -hmm. then allows them to be either near the ball or near space where they can get on the ball quickly and transition, which is now what soccer mostly is all about right now in this phase of its evolution. Now it's about those quick transition moments to get from one end to the other, to get from where you win the ball to the goal as quickly as possible. The Mm -hmm. number 10 position helps that so much and allows teams to be more effective when they attack in ways that I'm not sure really any other position on the field inherently does. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I just think it is still, if you look around the league, even the players that you mentioned, if you look around the league, every single big time 10 is a high profile player. They paid each team paid a lot of money for him. So it's hard to say that that position is not valuable when those are the most valuable players that you 
have brought into your teams. Yeah. I'm talking good, dollar bills. Point. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I get that. <laughs> it's a good point. And it's just something that, well, am I just complimenting myself by saying it's a good point since yes. I brought this up? Yes, so you are, but it's cool. It's a good point that you're making there, Jordan. And it's just something that I've been thinking about as watching as I've been watching games throughout the last couple of weeks, and it was again triggered by Maxi Morales. So thank you mm-hmm. for indulging me in that monologue always. slash back and forth at the top of the show because I needed to get it off my chest. We're always here for that, Joe. <laughs> All right, <laughs> on to our first game of the weekend that we're going to be sinking our teeth into, and that is Philadelphia's 5 nothing win. That is not a typo. That is not an audible typo. A 5 nothing win over Toronto FC. What a statement from Jim Mm. Curtin's team. It puts them on top of the Eastern Conference. They truly, they well and truly dominated this game. Dominated. Capital letters. I mean, at halftime, they'd outshot Toronto 16-1. to They had a 60-40 possession split against Toronto FC, against Greg Vanny, Mm -hmm. who almost always wants to control a ball. Then at the end of the game, the Union had 12 shots on target to Toronto FC's one shot on target. I don't have the expected goals numbers right available to me at the moment, but man, this was a thrashing. Jim Curtin yeah. at halftime called it some of the best soccer that they'd played in quite some time, and it very much was. It mm-hmm. was a complete first half, a very good second half that showed us just how dangerous the Philadelphia Union can be. Yeah. One thing I've been noticing, Joe, in Major League Soccer in general this year is when we have these midweek breaks. <laughs> We've had so many Wednesday games that when there is no Wednesday game, teams tend to come back and look a little sluggish. If you look at a lot of the games this weekend, there wasn't a ton of like real high flying quality back and forth games. Like we maybe saw last weekend when teams are in a rhythm and it's like every three or four days, you have a game, you have a game, you have a game when they get out of this rhythm. And I'm, I'm going to speak to Toronto FC right now. They went home and because of quarantine, they were home. They couldn't train. It was um, a, a different lineup for TFC. Uh, Aro Jr. was in Nick DeLeon. Michael Bradley was back. Gallardo, Endo. Those are a lot of changes for TFC. They're not, they're not bad changes by any means. I mean, those are still very quality players, but it was a different starting lineup from TFC and they just could never get flowing. They couldn't. Which was shocking. They couldn't, right? And it was, I think, almost two-sided here. Toronto couldn't get flowing with their possession because they almost melted at the union's pressure. I mean, when, when Bradley, who started this game, or Liam Frazier, who comes into this game in the second half, Mm -hmm. those guys are supposed to be the reliable possession metronomes that can cope with pressure, that can move the ball forward or at least move the ball sideways or backwards out of pressure. Those guys struggled to do that in this game. So Toronto Mm -hmm. had difficulties advancing the ball against the union's pressure. They also had difficulties defending the union's possession, Mm -hmm. which I think that maybe was the thing that surprised me even more than the other half, because the union, in my head, I still have that image of of the, the tactical camera goal from the MLS's back tournament where the union are just running in transition on that, you know, random field at Disney sports complex, yes. wide world of sports, whatever it's called. That's my vision of the Philadelphia union still is Brendan Aronson in the front two and maybe Montero running out into the open field and getting into space. The union did that in this game, to be clear, mm-hmm. but they also did some nice things with the ball, disorganizing Toronto's back line, moving Brendan Aronson into space behind the back line, doing creative things with the ball that created goal-scoring opportunities for them. So it's both sides of the coin right. that the Union did things well and Toronto FC struggled. Okay. You want to start with something specific that you noticed that you liked? I'd love to. I want to start okay. with the first goal of this game. It feels like a, a a nice place to begin. This is the Union's goal in the 27th minute. It's a Sergio Santos header that comes from a Kai Wagner cross from the left side. So 
I'm going to set the scene a little bit here before we dig into the tactical nitty gritties. The Union had the ball on the right side of their own half, high up the field. Toronto have just lost it against that sideline. So they're in a little bit of a pressing moment. They step up the field. They've got a 4v4, I believe it is, against the Union's four attackers Mm -hmm. that are now on the ball in possession against the sideline. They've got a 4v4. But Gallardo, who's the man responsible for closing down the ball, lets Alejandro Bedoya play the ball into the middle of the field for Montero, breaking out of the pressure, getting away from Toronto FC's numbers and breaking into space. So Montero then lays the ball off to Jose Martinez, who springs Kai Wagner down the left wing, and then Kai Wagner plays an inch-perfect cross to Sergio Santos, who heads it in to give the Union a one nothing lead. It's a, it's a nice goal off the top, Jordan. Yeah. The cross, right. the technique displayed on so many of these different movements, the layoff from Montero, the, the pass the first time, from, I think, right? It's a great from ball. From Martinez, it is delightful. Go watch it, essentially, if you haven't yeah. seen this goal already. It's a lovely team buildup that leads to that inch-perfect Kai Wagner cross, as I said. But for me, the biggest thing about this goal is more of a Toronto problem than a Union success, if you want to put it that way. Toronto okay. had the Union locked against the sideline. They had mm-hmm. they had the chance to win the ball back right there in the spot where you want to win it back. I mean, Jordan, I don't know if when you were playing, sideline traps were emphasized by coaches that you had, but moving it all the way back to my my very, very amateur high school basketball career, our basketball coach told us, you know, the sideline is your friend. The sideline is where yeah. you can trap the ball. It's an extra defender. And Toronto had the ball trapped up against the sideline, and Gallardo lets Bedoya play out. He leaves Uh the door open, which is what I wrote my newsletter about this week, Benched. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do that. But he (laughs) leaves the door open and allows allows the union to play out of that space and advance the ball forward, and that gives up the goal. It's a huge mistake from Gallardo and Toronto in that moment to not suck the ball against the sideline and win it right back. I actually think on the other side of things, and I appreciate that because it is, that is a picture perfect time for Toronto FC to win the ball back in that quick transition eight seconds after you lose the ball hunt it go straight to goal type of scenario but I think Philadelphia is maybe one of the best teams at figuring out a little they have this set play that they do I swear with their four in the midfield um, their diamond structure really sets them up well for When they're in those situations, whether it's on the right or the left side, Joe, and they feel like they're a little bit trapped in their defensive third, they play what is seemingly a pretty dangerous ball into the center of the field. And it's the opposite side midfielder. So either the left midfielder or the right midfielder midfielder. In this case, it was Montero, which you were talking about, who tucks really far inside to be that outlet player to then drop the ball off to Martinez. And I think it's a really nice play that I see them do over and over again throughout the game. And one of the things that I picked out in saying Philly has thought about if teams high press us, how can we get out? And maybe it's not just that big ball into the front runner. And sometimes the front runner is that connecting piece. But for me, I'm noticing time and time again, it's that opposite side outside midfielder or the the outside points in the diamond who tucks all the way over to be that connecting piece. And that's such a key role in this midfield to be one of those outside players. And even thinking about this goal specifically, it's Bedoya who plays that pass into the middle of the field for his mm-hmm. his number eight partner on the other side, Montero, who's tucked inside. I mean, mm-hmm. if Montero is all the way wide, he's not a part of the play. There's right. no outlet in that central space besides Jose Martinez, who wouldn't have been able to get on the ball from that first initial pass from Bedoya. So Montero's movement and central, you know, occupying that central space that you brought up, that's, that is a key part of this attack. That doesn't happen. The Union don't break into space without that. 
Because Aronson is typically that the, if he's the top of the diamond, he's tucked over on that right side in this scenario to be just straight up the line, that outlet straight up the line in the space there. So then I feel he does a good job of occupying then the holding midfielder or that uh, transition piece for Toronto FC because a lot of balls do get just played into there and we see a lot of teams win those first and second balls because they outnumber whoever the defensive team is trying to play out of their their defensive third in that space. And TFC couldn't do that because Philly squeezed that player over. So I think it's a really... It's a smart defensive move from Philly. Before we get to your first kind of takeaway from this game, I did want to add one thing to your Aronson point. I just think it's so interesting how Jim Curtin uses him. We've talked about it before, but he's not, he doesn't play like a number 10. And that's part of why I actually didn't bring him up in that list that I was firing off at the top of the show. Mm -hmm. He doesn't play like a, a playmaker. He doesn't play like a guy who's going to get on the ball, partially because I don't think he's great at finding space yet but also because Curtin just uses him straight up as a member of the front line, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. start there, but almost always he's making that run that you just talked about. He's making that run down down the sideline into space, or he's making runs in possession higher up the field into pockets of space, not in front of the line, like you'd expect from an attacking midfielder, but behind the line. And I think that's fascinating because it works for the union. So that's all yeah. I had to add. Jordan, what did you take out of this game? or What was one of the things that you pulled out from watching this one? Okay, there's a couple of things that I notice but can we talk about corner kicks because toronto was awful (laughs) on corner kicks what happened on that mark mckenzie goal i hope you're going to talk about that because i'm baffled i'm confused the thing i noticed about toronto and and we'll talk about that goal because that's the second is that the second goal that's the second there's so many goals in this game five of them to be exact it was the second goal but I start off with Toronto isn't good on corner kicks because it wasn't just the goal against on the corner kick that was poor. It was the space that they were leaving unoccupied and their half zone, half man marking scheme. So they had three zoners. It was usually Michael Bradley in that uh, first zone, which was inside the six, probably like equidistant from the goal line to the top of the six. So um, he was standing almost at that near post, but in tucked inside a little bit. And then the two other zoners were on top of the six, a little bit farther back. Um, I would say flanking the goalkeeper, like the middle of the goal, right? So they had this little half arc, three zoners and everybody else man marked. What I was noticing is Michael, the space right away from the goal to Michael Bradley. So right at the top of the six, that near six, either Philadelphia was playing it straight into that box and there was two chances for Bedoya who hit a little flick header both times and got him both on frame. And it was end up being good, a good save by West Westberg. It was that space that continually was being... Um, exploited for Philadelphia. And they were doing a really good job of throwing a player into that space. So what happened on the goal is they threw players to that space and then the ball went long. And if you have zoners and you're a free free marker, if you can't get to the ball, you have to start to think about where is the ball going to go next? And I watched this goal and I was really watching Omar Gonzalez because he was the farthest back in that zone. And as the ball went all the way over his head, he just stood there and his his head just watched the ball. 
He didn't reorganize, reorient himself, and none of them did. All three of the zoners just stood there. When the ball goes all the way across, the zoners have to shift to say, okay, what's the next possible space that the ball can go to? And if the ball's going to go all the way long over everybody, it's going to come back into the mix. There's no way that person's heading the ball on goal. And if they do, that's an easy pickup from, from Westberg. So I think that... It was just the awareness of, okay, if they're exploiting that face, space at the near six, let's shift Michael Bradley out a little bit and don't let them play the ball into that spot. Or if they're playing it over our heads, we have to shift and we have to reorient ourselves and to pick up the space because we are the free players. And if the ball comes into this zone, we have to win it. And that was evidently not happening. How do you fix that? If you're Toronto FC, are you in the film room throughout the week watching set pieces over and over again? Or is this as simple as these veteran players realizing that their awareness needs to be improved going forward? I think easily if I'm the goalkeeper and I'm seeing that that ball is going to that near space every single, nearly every single time, because you can go back in this game and see, I counted four times where the near post. Uh, yeah, I had the two for Bedoya, uh, driven ball flick at the near post. I had it written down again. Shabilko was there in the second half. So four times I had written down. And if it comes in there twice in a row, or actually if it just hits hits one to that near post, I'm just sliding Michael Bradley out a little bit. Just to say, okay, you, if you're going to play this space, you're going to at least get challenged by whoever's marking that near post runner and our zoner, zonal person. But really, if you're going to zone, and I think I've talked about this before, there is a determination about you that if the ball comes in my zone, I am going to win the ball. And I don't think that determination, especially when you're talking about um, reorienting yourself on the second ball, if you don't have that determination, you are just going to stand there. So I think it was more of a mentality thing and less of a, okay, we're not doing, we're set up wrong because those players are good in the air. We didn't plan this beforehand. We didn't talk about it, but that mentality fits exactly what I wanted to talk about before we shift over to our next game that we'll hit. Man, the mentality of Michael Bradley, Omar Gonzalez, and Laurent Simon is frightening if you're a Toronto FC fan. I think I said it. Was it last week? Genuinely, the weeks run together on this show and just in life at the moment right now. But I've <laughs> talked about before on this show about how Toronto's central spine scares me. Michael mm-hmm. Bradley hasn't been I think starting. It was last week. Okay, okay. So last week I talked about that. And Michael Bradley hasn't been starting, but he came off the bench last week, if I'm not mistaken. This game he starts. Simon starts, even though, again, that's not ideal for Toronto FC. Omar Gonzalez starts. He is the regular starter at that right center back spot. Those players could not keep up with, with uh, the Philadelphia Union's attacking play. They couldn't keep mm-hmm. up on set pieces, which, to be honest with you, I didn't notice. Yeah. And I love that you brought that piece of analysis. They couldn't keep up an open play either. I mean, they couldn't compete physically. They couldn't compete with the, the pace of play. On the rest of these goals, just to run through them quickly, Montero gets an absolute banger at the start of the second half, or near the start of the second half, where they couldn't cope with pressure. Toronto's midfield couldn't cope with pressure. Santos grabs two more towards the middle of the second half. He bodies Omar Gonzalez for the first one, and he exposes Laurent Simon's unwillingness to run, and, and he exposes Toronto FC's offside trap on the second one. Michael Bradley was overrun in midfield. The center backs couldn't keep up. This is a problem for Toronto FC. This is scary. And I don't think it's going to be exposed unless you're playing a really, a solid team, number one, or a team with quick attackers. But that was the case. Both of those criteria were fulfilled by the Philadelphia Union in this game. Set pieces, Uh open play, all of the phases of play. And that's a problem for Greg Vanny. It's a big problem. Yeah. And one of the players that I feel like is not 
typically that is Richie Larea. I felt like he got hosed this whole entire game because the way that Toronto was playing it, against the the four midfielders of Philadelphia against their three, they had to tuck their winger in. So then that outside channel with Wagner, he could get the ball and run at Larea. And there was too much space between the two of them because Larea didn't know if he should say inside because Philadelphia is so good. I think one of the things that Philly, Philly does the best is change, interchange the lines between the midfielders and the forwards. So Santos and Shabilka will come back into the midfield and those it's Montero or Aronson or even Bedoya who will run in behind mostly Aronson, but they will change lines from the midfield to the forwards, which leaves one, a lot of space for Martinez, but it squeezes Toronto to put more players centrally, which usually usually means a winger centrally. And when that right winger tucked in centrally, it gave Kai Wagner so much room to go up against Larea. And so I think that it was just a poor matchup from the start and a tough game plan from Toronto to really make it difficult on Philadelphia. These teams are going to be in the playoffs. I'm excited to see what those matchups are going to look like, whether they face off again against each other, whether they're taking on other opponents from the Eastern Conference. But either way, this game is a preview of at least two playoff teams that we're going to see as this year moves past the regular season and into the postseason. And that has me jazzed. Mm-hmm. And just to see how Toronto jumps back from that. And if Philly can, like, I don't know, we have to see this matchup again. <laughs> Jordan just turned into an editor. I think it was coming up with all the different storylines and narratives that we can craft. We found another career for you. If you're ever, if you're ever tired of watching 18 million soccer games a weekend, is that about right? Yeah, that's all right. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. On to our next game. This is LAFC's 2-0 win over the Los Angeles Galaxy from Sunday on ABC. Big TV game for Major League Soccer. This game did not turn into what I thought it was going to be. We were texting back and forth about this. The big storyline from the first half, the big moment in the first half is the red card for Giancarlo Gonzalez. It's in the 21st minute. He brings Diego Rossi down just outside the box and the Galaxy go down to 10 men. And whenever that happens, the game is irreversibly changed from that Mm. point forward for the rest of the 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. I just don't I don't understand why you started him again. I don't get it. Is that is that a harsh thing to say? I just think like Depew is doing a pretty good job and there have been so many instances in this season when we have noted Gonzalez just not being up for the task. Yeah. And I think it was a really strange thing to start him against 
LAFC who when LAFC are on and I think they showed a lot more of that promise of their ability to attack in this game against their city rivals. I just am very curious about why you would start him again. Yeah, I mean, hey, I'm always happy to make you, at least in a pretend fashion, the head coach of the Los Angeles Galaxy, but you never seem to want to do that. So <laughs> we're going to move past that lineup decision oh and leave that gosh, for Guillermo yeah. Barroso-Loto. Right. But yes, your point is is very, very valid. I mean, Gonzalez has had issues. Maybe it's just Gonzalez center backs in Major League Soccer. We got Omar and Giancarlo here, both struggling at times in these two games that we've gone over. Uh-huh. It's tough. And he did yeah. not perform well in these first 21 minutes. Then he leaves the game, leaving the Galaxy with 10. And at that point, the game changes, right? Yeah. 10 men versus 11, that going that was always going to change how the Galaxy chose to approach this match. And it very much turned this game into a low block, the Galaxy's low, low block with 10 men, including the goalkeeper behind the ball, versus LAFC's high possession structure. And that was the matchup for so many moments in the rest of this game. Mm-hmm. Before we talk about that and talk about each team and how they adapted, I do want to say I felt like one of the things that we haven't been seeing from LAFC, we got to see again, which is usually one of my favorite talking points about this team with Tristan Blackman. But this <laughs> this game, it was Mohamed El Munir who played in, on the right side, outside back, but he's a left-footed player. And what I liked about what he did is he... LAFC turned into what they they like to do is turn into a three back with their right sided outside back who tucks in centrally. When that player tucks in centrally into that internal channel, and this time it was El Munir, he leaves a, a huge space on the right side on the outside channel for typically Carlos Vela, but this time time it was Diego Rossi who was isolated and the best chance in the early moments of the game came from just that El Munir was inside Rossi gets the ball out wide and he dribbles and attack and you'll see this when I noticed on the replay of this as Rossi gets the ball Atuesta typically likes to come and check and, and help and be another outlet for the ball and he took a step to the ball and he saw that he was isolated and he literally paused and, and came back out of the space to just leave the space open so he could dribble and it ends up being across Rossi ends up playing it it's a little combination play back into the channel and he continues his run and then he just um, I think it's Sinfuentes who plays him the ball at the top of the box and he just dings it off the crossbar but it was a beautiful execution of what we see time and time again from LAFC or we are uh, we have been accustomed to and I don't think we've seen it as much this season but it was really beautiful I think if Atuesta or, or pretty much any other player on LAFC encroaches Diego Rossi's space or Carlos Vela's space <laughs> on that right wing, Bob Bradley should and, and maybe even would find them. Yeah, right? They have like a zapper on them. And yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stay out of there, everybody. And yeah. Atuesta was wise to give those primary attacking playmakers space because you don't want to draw another defender over there and make their lives more difficult than they need to be in that isolated situation. Right. Okay, so the the individual matchup or the, the team-wide matchup that I talked about just a moment ago, the Galaxy's block versus LAFC's possession structure. And I think I'm going to touch on LAFC, and I think you have some things to say on the Galaxy and how they Mm -hmm. defended in this game. When you're playing a team who's defending in a low block, I think there's a few different questions you have to ask yourself or things that you have to look at for ways that you can break down that block or break through that block. So I was thinking about this as I was watching this game, particularly the second half. So how, how do you break down a low block? I think there are a few different ways. Number one, horizontal movement to pull the block apart. 
if you think about just just ripping it from side to side and creating gaps in the middle. If you move the ball horizontally across the field, that's going to force the defense to shift and give you lanes to exploit, either through the pass or through the dribble. Then you've got vertical movement. Number, the way number two is vertical movement to get in behind the block or in behind the back line. That can be through off-ball runs that cut straight through the block. That can be through dribbling or that could even result from the horizontal movement. That was point number one. Then I think you've got winning 1v1s, which is dribbles. That can be a way to break through the block. Maybe it's Rossi isolated on that right side, going at the opposing left back or at the opposing left-sided midfielder, whatever it is, to break into the box and create something in that moment. Then number four, and this is the last one, and that's the one that I like the least, shots from distance. Not a great plan. That's what I wrote down in my notes, just parentheses. Not a great plan. Not likely to go in, although you could get a rebound. It might go in. You can create something from that. Yeah. So then my question was for LAFC, as I was watching them and trying to evaluate them, is how well will they do one, two, three, or all all four of these things in the second half, going against the 10-men LA Galaxy team? And I think I think my answer is that they didn't really do any of those things very well at all. The Galaxy were back, they were compact, they were defending well, moving side to side well. LAFC maybe didn't play with the level of urgency that Bob Bradley would have wanted them to to break through that block. But ultimately, and this is what I think is so interesting about soccer, ultimately it didn't matter. It didn't matter that they couldn't break through the block. It didn't matter that they couldn't create space high up the field against the Galaxy's low defensive structure because they found their goals in transition moments. They found mm-hmm. their goals in space when the Galaxy were stretched. And it's it's hard for the Galaxy because not only because of all the VAR stuff, which I really, really don't want to talk about because I'm not a referee and other people are going to talk about it. So you can yeah, find it there. But in terms, <laughs> in terms of what actually happened on the field and what, what was or wasn't called, we can set that aside. LAFC find their first goal. It's Danny Musovsky who goes essentially coast to coast at the end of an LAFC attack. Segura sort of keeps the ball in, I guess. LAFC move forward. Danny Musovsky scores. The goal comes in space. It's way easier to score goals when there's space to exploit than when there's Mm -hmm. not. Even the second goal, and then I'll turn it over to you, Jordan, because I've been talking for a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. Even the second goal, that LAFC second goal, it's Carlos Vela. He's back. He's on the field. He comes in as a sub in the second half. He finds the goal. He finds the ball. BWP finds him after LAFC win the ball on the left side of the field or the near side, you know, for the broadcast, and the Galaxy are stretched. They were trying to get forward. They were trying a little bit to find that equalizer. They were only down 1-0. They turn the ball over. LAFC pounces on it. They attack into space. Carlos Vela scores. So for Mm -hmm. all of the low block defending, it didn't end up mattering at all, which is bizarre. It's bonkers. That was the true matchup in this game. Low block versus high possession. And at the end of the day, didn't make any difference. LAFC didn't do their attacking things very well, but they did the attacking things that they needed to do well, well enough to score two goals. Yeah, that's a good point. And it is, I I feel like it's going to be very useful in these last few games of the season and even going into playoffs is LAFC has to feel confident that they can figure out a way to tempt the other team into stretching out, even if they are playing in a low block in order to create the space they need to score a goal. And that's one of the things that we hear a lot from coaches, right, Joe, is when they're saying not only manipulate numbers with the ball but without the ball and that's a without the ball type of thing that you're talking about can you flesh that out a little bit more can you flesh out what you mean by manipulating numbers because it's it's easier to see when you have the ball and trying to move players in and out of space but without the ball what are you what are you exactly getting at with that point well in, in that exact example where you're talking about the the space that was created for LA Galaxy to, or LAFC to score is 
they allowed Galaxy to attack and let numbers come up the field and maybe didn't quite high press how they normally do to try to win the ball back higher on the field to give themselves back the space in behind. So if they just allow Galaxy to kind of work their way up the field and start to feel a little bit confident, knowing the whole entire time, okay, if we can let them work up the field and then squeeze them to one side in our defensive half, win the ball, then we have an outlet that we can transition quickly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I think deep down, and thank you for, for kind of fleshing that out more, I think deep down, as much as I love watching LAFC play this high up the field possession style or watching, you know, classic Barcelona do that or any team pretty much that Pep Guardiola has ever touched. I think deep down, I still feel like defending in a low block and counterattacking is the most effective way to play soccer. And I know there's so many people out there who would not agree with me, number one, or really hate that I said that. But I think there's at least a few other people out there who feel that inside, too. And who Did you say that, the most effective way to play soccer? The most effective way, not the most beautiful okay. way to play soccer. <laughs> just, I want to be clear just about clarify. that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it might be the just downright the best way to play winning soccer. I think about France at the 2018 World Cup. And yes, they had some of the best players in the world at a number of different spots mm-hmm. on that lineup in that starting 11 that won the World Cup. But they didn't dominate the ball. They didn't control possession. They sat in a defensive structure, pressured in moments, stepped high in moments, but they won the ball and they counterattacked. And they were lethal in space. That's what LAFC, I think, do the best. They're lethal in space. They're, they're mm-hmm. very good in possession most times, although maybe that hasn't been quite as true this season. But under Bob Bradley, they're good in possession a lot, but they're really, really good when there's space to attack into. And I think that's, that's what you're yeah. getting at with manipulating numbers without the ball. You want there to be space. And when there's space, right. LAFC are going to beat you. Yeah, and Portland's good at that. Seattle's good at yeah. that. And um, where are those teams almost always, right? They're almost the always table. at the top of the Western Conference. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I just think about that sometimes. All right. That's a good little nugget to throw in there. Um, okay. So I'm going to talk about LA Galaxy. have to always think a couple times before <laughs> I say that because sometimes those names just get confusing. I am kind of feeling like they should play with 10 men all the time. <laughs> maybe. Maybe you solved it, Jordan. And, and maybe it's not that, but I think the compactness that they showed and the willingness to defend in that small space that they had created on the field actually made them look better. And they were really hard to break down. And I, I think that that's one of the things with Galaxy, because you and I have talked about this. They have a number of good players. Pavone, Leggett, Chicharito, uh Joe Corona, who didn't see a lot of minutes in this game, but he did get in. They have a lot of attacking talent, but sometimes it can feel very disjointed. 
So when it feels disjointed in attack, then try to bring all that together and try to get it back into a condensed, compact defensive shape. That's challenging. And I think when you start on the defensive side, which is a lot of the times when new coaches come in or there's a a change in coaching structure. We've seen this with Cincinnati. We saw it this year with Orlando. You focus on the defensive structure first in order to gain stability, and then you build in the attacking variability. And I think it might be a good move right now for Galaxy to structurally keep their lines a little bit tighter and play in a little bit lower of a block with some an outlet in Pavone because there were still times where they could get out and try to attack with with his speed and throwing numbers forward and that but I think with the players that they had in there, Kleshin and Dos Santos, they were so tight together and so compact in the middle of field in that midfield block that it made it easy for them to shift side to side. I don't think, as you mentioned, I don't think LAFC did a good job of moving the ball quick enough in order to stretch them out and make them uh, create some overloads in the channels that then shifted them in the midfield to create the gap centrally. But I think for what it's worth, the Galaxy did a good job of staying compact and keeping their lines tight. 100%. I mean, you can't have acres of space between your lines horizontally and vertically. And the Galaxy Mm -hmm. have had that space open for so much, at least of the recent section of the season. I have almost a low light, low light reel in my head of the Galaxy's (laughs) defensive structure. Just that for some reason plays in my head in moments that I can picture from watching games earlier this season, prepping for conversations about the Galaxy or their opponents, where there's just too much open space. Mm -hmm. And when you cut that out, when you condense your lines, when you do everything that you just said, Jordan, you give your team so much of a better chance to win. Not only do you do that, but you almost make, you almost shut out the team that has some of the best attacking firepower in Major League Soccer. I mean, they brought on, LAFC had Bradley Wright Phillips and Carlos Vela coming off the bench in this game. And still, the Galaxy didn't concede any goals in a set defensive posture, right? Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for that. And do I think, Absolutely. do I think that ultimately it's going to matter at all? Honestly, I don't, because Guillermo Barros-Charlotto is almost certainly not going to be back for the Galaxy at the end of the mm-hmm. season or going into next season. But still, it's a reminder of how important a compressed defensive structure is and how much better you look, even if you're playing with 10, how much better you look in that structure versus a spread wide open one. And I feel like just going through some of the goals that Galaxy have given up this season, a lot of them are these back post runners who get inside the outside backs and so and the outside backs look gassed a lot of the time and they're like struggling to get there and it's a middle little mental lapse and I think taking away that responsibility from the outside backs to get forward to be included in the attack they then are able to do what they're supposed to do first and foremost which is defend space and defend that back post and be turned on in the moments that mentally that you need to have that that uh flip switched and they ha- were able to do that and clear out balls when they were crossed in in dangerous areas so i think that um it, it was a little i think if you were la galaxy you were nervous when you go down to 10 men but i thought they really reacted and handled it really well I think so as well. And and even just talking about some of the positive things that the Galaxy showed in this game, thinking about how Guillermo Barra-Charlotto is likely not to be back next season, it almost has me excited about what the Galaxy could be 
because they have the talent, they have the players. Totally. If you have yeah. a coach who can instill some sort of on-field identity, a consistent on-field identity on this roster, maybe they get Pavon back, maybe they don't. But either way, they still have guys who can contribute mm-hmm. in Major League Soccer in a real way. That's going to be fun. And I'm excited to watch that going forward. We just have to wait another little bit before we're really going to see that. Yeah. Jordan, on to tactical tidbits. We've each got one this week. We've each got one to go back and forth on. Do you want to go first or second? Um, I'll just go and and talk about I watched D.C. Atlanta game and um, I actually thought Atlanta looked to be the better team in the first 45 minutes. And D.C. was playing in a 4-4-2. And the thing that I want to talk about is the switch at halftime from D- from D.C. And they went from a 4-4-2 into a 4-2-3-1. And the reason why I feel like this worked for them because Atlanta was gaining momentum and going forward. And I think the reason that this worked for DC is when you play in a 4-4-2, you lose some of the depth between lines when you're attacking. And especially when you have a player like Julian Gressel and they haven't found a way to really get the most out of him since he's joined the team in D.C. And I think a 4-2-3-1 can give him that freedom, especially if you have an, an outside back who can get forward because then he can tuck inside from the right side and play like a winger, but also a pocket winger and a playmaker in that that channel. And I think they did D.C. did a better job of keeping the ball in the second half and that allowed them to be in a little bit better of a position to transition and press Atlanta a little bit higher. Now, Atlanta still had some good buildups, but I think that initial transition and then them shifting into that 4-4-2 block allowed DC to get pressure on the two holding mids for Atlanta a little bit better than they were in the first half and and not get so compact back into their defensive third. And then when they went forward and attack, which I really think is if DC is going to make it into the playoffs, they're going to have to score goals and their structure going forward and attack was a little bit better. My biggest takeaway from that DC Atlanta United game was an assist from Kevin Paredes. At the end of this game, he gets the game winning assist. He's so good. He's fun. He's a fun guy to watch. I don't know where his best spot is on the field. I think it's in a wide space, but that's where he is on this assist. He drives at Brooks Lennon, beats him, cuts the ball back. DC United score, go up 2-1 to one and win this game at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Man, I respect you going and, and digging into the analysis about DC United's performance because that's that's really all I had to bring to the table. No, and, and I knew I didn't know you were going to say that, but I know he had talked about him before, and I really do enjoy watching him play. I think he's a, a bright young talent, and the thing I think differentiates him is that mentality. To be the youngest player on that DC squad and to say, I'm going to be the difference maker... You have to have a good, sharp mentality. I'm excited to see what happens with Paredes and Moses Nyman, even Griffin Yao, but maybe to a slightly lesser extent. But those two guys, especially, where they're going to go, because they're both really, really good and really, really young. Yeah. All right. What's yours, Joe? All right. I've got a tidbit from Sporting Kansas City's 4-0 win over the Colorado Rapids. There are some extenuating circumstances surrounding this game, first of all. Colorado are coming back. This is their first game after a sizable break due to a COVID outbreak within the team. So everything I say needs to have a caveat, but I wanted to give Sporting Kansas City some credit. We talked about them last week. We talked all about triangles and their midfield battle with the Chicago Fire, Mm -hmm. but they come out in this game. They're playing at home. They're playing, yes, a Colorado team who is just coming back, but they played so well. 
They passed the ball well. They moved the ball well. They rotated in possession very well and reminded me and reminded, I think, a lot of people that they could very well win the Western Conference. They could end up at the top spot playing that possession soccer that I just pretty much confess that I don't think is quite as effective of an attacking method <laughs> as sitting a little bit deeper like Portland or Seattle. I mean, SKC have Alan Polito back and he scores that first goal in this game. He's got good composure in the box. He's difficult for opposing center backs to deal with. This team is clicking right now, or at least they mm-hmm. were against the Rapids. What they can do with Polito back starting as that pseudo number nine with a, a rotational possession structure that almost looks like Orlando City's in that temporary three back. They keep Jalen Lindsay at right back, back alongside the two center backs. That gives their midfielder space in the attack. That gives Alan Polito time to rotate and move forward and maybe Gaddy Keen to, to step behind the back line. This sporting Kansas City team is firing on all cylinders right now, and they are fun to watch and dangerous to play against. If you're playing a team who hasn't played in a month, you have to be good at what you just said. Yeah. Keeping the ball. Yeah. Because if you have the ball, man, does it suck to be the other team chasing, especially a SKC team who has those uh, shifts and those transitions and the rotations that you were talking about. There's so much, not only physical work, but mental work of who's then, who are you tracking your runner how far are you tracking your runner who are you passing your runner off to are you stepping are you dropping there's so many little things that go into decision making that then make it also mentally exhausting on the defending team as well it's going to be a fun playoffs maybe not the first round maybe not quite the first round although who knows upsets are always fun if we get some of those but the tops of both conferences are really good. This is not an accurate representation of the table, but just a few teams off the top of my head. SKC, Portland, Seattle, LAFC, even Minnesota in the Western Conference. Philadelphia, Toronto FC, Columbus, Orlando City in the Eastern Conference. Mm -hmm. These teams have legitimate talent and have, for the most part, tactical identities that propelled them and have propelled them through the season. It's going to be fun. I'm really excited for playoffs, and they're right around the corner. All right. We did it. We ran through the number 10, who is very much still a part of modern soccer. We ran through the Philadelphia Union's 5-0 win over Toronto FC, LAFC's 2-0 win over LA Galaxy, and two tactical tidbits. Way to go, us. Good work. Let's close Let's close this week's work. The, the week's work is officially closed. Listeners, thank you all for listening. <laughs> we truly appreciate you guys for supporting us. If you're feeling spicy, if you're feeling a little, little generous today, leave us a review. That can be good or bad. Feedback is always appreciated. Yeah. Leave us a review. Share the show if you have a soccer-loving friend. Even if you don't do those things, we're still super thankful for you. Yeah, thank you guys for listening, and we'll be back next week. 